Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special series of dramatic readings covering the Outplay 2021 Finals. Wishkamon had the idea, and it ran away from me. The only person not reading their own posts is Echidnu, due to a lack of time, so we have a wonderful sub in Just Some Guy. Highly encourage you to check it all out. Enjoy. Call Bartholomew. We haven't lost just yet. Sir Ether was calling out, just as Elaith knocked him out. The order was not complete, but Bartholomew heard it and knew what to do. The ground started to violently shake, so much so that the grains of sand making up rocky were sifted to the surface, and the crossing companions were all knocked to their feet. The remnants of the chapel continued to crumble, and nearby buildings started toppling in on themselves. A bright light shot out from across the street, originating from a staircase leading down into the ground. Those stairs led to the holding cell Rocky had just located, Fu's Bar. Two tendrils of energy like lassos whipped out from the light and grabbed Sorbo and Jeremy by the feet. Both were then quickly pulled in and flung through the doorway below ground. They were now in Fu's Bar, a holding cell from which there would be no escape. Laeth stood to continue the fight, but he had another fate waiting for him. The last winter's call had come. Despite the ground shaking, Agarius's well-laced boots still served their purpose and he was able to pull himself to his feet. Not far away, Magnus stood as well. The former swamp witch and infamous drill master was too old and stubborn to give up just because the world seemed to be collapsing in on itself. Rocky pulled his form together and, despite trying to run earlier, now found himself part of the trio, the last of the crossing companions left who could stand up to Bishop Bartholomew. The tremor stopped and a silhouette then emerged in the light radiating from Fu's bar. By now, the companions recognized who it was by his size and shape, even before any details could be seen. It was Bishop Bartholomew, here to finish off the crossing companions that remained. There was no villainous monologue, explaining in detail his evil plan, no Sunday sermon to justify his actions, just quick, swift action. Bartholomew raised his staff, and three new tendrils of energy again shot out like lassos. This time, the tendrils grabbed large pieces of stone that had fallen from the chapel, and with ease hurled them, one each, at Rocky, Magna, and Agaris. So this is what drowning is like. The ground trembles and heaves and shifts like a roiling ocean, convulsing beneath a thunderous storm. Instinctively, Rocky tries to flee down towards the steadfast safety of the deep earth. But his sandy grains are buffeted by waves of clay and a groundswell of shale. Earth is not meant to move like water, but today the world is upside down. Despite his frantic efforts to sink into the airless depths, the elemental is pushed up to the surface, to a land of crumbling buildings and falling rocks. This is how a Terran drowns. Fortunately, elementals don't breathe, and surfacing by itself is harmless. Indeed, for a brief instant, it seems aside from the unnatural quaking of the earth, that all is well. Sir Ether is down, as is the Grey Guard Mage, and the rest of the cultists are either unconscious or gone. Relieved, Rocky gathers his sand together and reforms into his rocky self. Just as two coils of solid light ensnare his companions. Sorbo is too far away, but Jeremy is dragged past him almost within reach. The Terran hurls himself forward, falling as he stretches out to his full extent, reaching as far as he possibly can. His massive fingers brush against the rider's frail body, 
Success is within his grasp. But a shark yank of the luminous tendril leaves him with naught but the blanket that covered the noble's frame. Jeremy! His booming voice echoes with shame and despair. As if hoping to find some remnant of his friend within, Rocky raises the large blanket and gives it a slight, speculative shake. A pair of sunglasses clatters cheerlessly onto the ground. He was so close. But what does it matter? He has failed his friend again. No. The mental connection to Occam is fainter than usual, but still clear. One does not fail merely by not succeeding. The only true failure lies in surrender. The measure of a hero is not his infallibility, for every person fails. No. A true hero endures beyond failure to try again, perhaps to fail again, but to persist nonetheless. You shall persevere, Lord Rocky, protector of the summoned. You shall... The connection is severed, just as the tremors cease. Rocky stares in confusion as Bartholomew reveals himself. His simple mind has difficulty understanding the bishop's treachery. Why would the bishop do this? Bewildered, he looks to his remaining companions for assistance, only to notice with dismay that Elliot has fallen. Help! His deep, gravelly voice pleads uncertainly for guidance from Magna and Agoras. With a jagged finger, he points towards the lighted doorway at the bottom of the stairs, naively offering the only information he has in return. Companion, prison, there. A moment later, the enemy attacks. There is no time to think. There is barely enough time to react. Shifting and twisting, Rocky tries to rotate his body out of the hurtling boulder's path while instinctively using his soft blanket to cushion any impact. The earth elemental is too slow to dive out of the way like a half-elf with well-laced boots, but with perfect timing and a good dose of luck. He avoids the blow completely, catching the flying rock with his blanket instead. Rather than trying to stop or smash the boulder like a typical Terran, Rocky lets the rock fly past, using both its and his momentum to redirect its trajectory. Spinning around, with his blanket nestling the stone like a sling, he whirls the boulder right back at Bartholomew, along with a simple question. Why? There is only one way to survive. Run, Igarus started aside reacting instantly and relying on his boots for some fancy footwork. It was only afterwards that he could take time to think. Igarus had thought himself and the others in control of the situation. Elieth had subdued Sir Ether with a little help from Magna. Jeremy was communing with Rocky, who'd investigated the underground and found the prison, and Sorbo and Igarus himself had rescued the city guards from becoming mere unfortunate consequences of the Grey Guard's evil plan. He'd not considered that there could be a leader behind Sir Ether, a man in the shadows using the swordsman as a figurehead. He had not considered, more to the point, that Eliath would suffer so for his heroism. The warrior in his bright armour fell, a light flashing from his body. Was that his armour? 
glinting in a sudden flash of moonlight. No, that was deeper, brighter. That was life, a fast flame burning away everything, leaving only a charred and twisted corpse behind. Igarus was not in control of the situation. And, as always, he reacted fast to stave off the panic. Igarus had started running as soon as the bishop hurled the rocks. He had kept running as he thought, for it was plain to see that this confrontation must be won, as retreat would only lead to death another day. Igarus refused to live in that sort of fear. The momentary fear of dodging heavy rocks was bad enough. The ledger Igarus had been constructing in his head came incongruously to mind. He had always hated and feared his bookkeeping lessons, but they seemed like a haven now. Should he update it? None of the assets remained current, nor the liabilities, yet the principal had served him well before. Asset. The man behind the man, Bishop Bartholomew, had emerged. Liability. He had seized Sorbo and Jeremy, flinging them into a pit. There was nothing to be done for them before the bishop was defeated. And Eliath, Igarus's hardened soul, had no time to mourn. Not now, but he would raise a glass to the warrior's memory later, if they survived. Asset. Magna and Rocky, two of the strongest companions, remained free and fit to fight, with Igarus himself. Liability. They were all in danger from incoming heavy rocks and whatever else the bishop could throw at them. If this fight could be won, though, oh, the victory that would be, to defend the companions, to rescue them from their imprisonment, to restore the team to the field, that would be glory beyond anything Igarus had known before. For a moment, the thought distracted him from his two primary concerns, survival and earning enough to see the next month through in style. But survival at least was more urgent than glory. Running, weaving, dodging whatever Bartholomew hurled, Igarus picked up Eliath's broken scythe. It was an unfamiliar weapon, bent and useless, but it was a symbol, not a sword, that Igarus needed. Inspiration and courage would be his weapons now. With those, he could guard the others so they took no wound, at least for now. We're alive, he shouted, delight in his voice. We have a job to do, and we stand here at the gates of the bishop's abyss, ready to enter ready to enter the abyss and rescue those held there. Sir Orfeo in the old lay did the same. His wife, Curidis, was struck by a madness, a vision, wherein the fairy king claimed her for his prize. Orfeo and a thousand knights took up arms to defend her, made a ring around her, yet she was snatched away, just as our companions have been. Achietimidis him full right, the queen was away to fight, as the poem says. Are we not in like peril? Yet, despite his grief, his abandonment of worldly things, Sir Orfeo did not discard his love. He took his beggar's cloak, his harp, and nothing more. For ten years he mourned her. And then, after an age, he saw her hawking with the fairy court. He ran after them, following their ride, even when it led him directly into stone, three miles or more into a rocky hill to an underground country. With nothing but his harp and his courage, he won back the love of his life from the fairy king, whom no other had dared to challenge. This victory, against all the odds, this is our fate today. Rocky, like Sir Orfeo, you can pass through the earth and can come to the prison this bishop rules. Magna, like Sir Orfeo, you know the wilds, the ways of the world, and can use those to guide us and keep us. And I, 
Like Sir Orfeo, I am swift of tongue, and can sway hearts of stone. Like Sir Orfeo, we shall survive, and, like him, we shall triumph. The moment of sweet relief as she heard Sir Aoife's body thudding to the ground mid-sentence was instantly soured by the implications of his choked words. The ground was trembling beneath her, but it was not from the ocean of writhing vines which she had been envisioning. No, it was something else. There was more struggling to do, more overcoming. Gods, if there was going to be more running, then she would be furious. Still, she had her companions by her side. Sorbo, Jeremy and Igaris were here, and somewhere beneath their feet tiny particles of rocky were beginning to sift to the surface, not to mention the unfaltering blade of the masterful scythe who could make thin ribbons from the bishop if it became necessary. Magnus spun around as a violent flash of light erupted behind her. Her eyes found the glowing vines first and followed their path as they ensnared Jeremy and the frosted figure of Sorbo. Let's go, Ellie! The unshakable dwarf almost stumbled as she rushed to pass Elliot. There was a tortured look on his pale visage and a stream of tears flowing from eyes which flicked between horrors unseen. Wise one, cousin, tell the others. Tell Fagane. Tell the little one, I'm sorry. Tell them your damned self, she shouted, unable to keep a ripple of emotion from her voice. She felt, for the first time, the desire to beat the deadly assassin, but somehow she knew, although she would never have the closure of understanding it completely, that it was already too late. There was no act of violence nor kindness which would bring him back to them. Magna made a thin effort to wipe the pained expression of shock from her face as Igaris approached, but it lingered behind her dark eyes and in the twitching corners of her perpetual frown. Up ahead, Rocky had taken a solid form again. She knew that the enduring giant had a gentle soul and a kind demeanour unsuited for battle, and his gravelly call for help only wrenched her heart further from its chest but all was lost if she let Rocky's pain and the empty husk of her good friend consume her. She forced herself into action, focusing on the newly acquired knowledge that the rest of their team were no more than several locked doors away beneath their feet. So then, all that was left to do was to wipe the floor with the gatekeeper and not get crushed to death. Easy. Once again, Igaris's words lit a fire in her heart and the old witch hoisted herself from her unsteady position, using her staff and a strength which she hadn't been entirely sure was still in her stout legs. She moved hastily across the street, keeping a safe distance from the foe so that she could keep track of everything which was going on. A giant stone lintel came hurtling towards her, but by whatever magical miracle the huge rock only clipped her by a millimetre. It buffeted her aside with a sharp pain and almost caused her to lose her balance, but it did no real damage. Not this time, she growled at the floor. It would not have her this time. As if there were any other option, the swamp witch bellowed, Take him down! Release the others! As she shifted her feet against the ground, feeling the energy of the wilds beneath them and channeling it up through her star. Two twisting vines reared from the earth on either side of her flailing back to gain momentum and then cracking forward like phase whips to strike the deceitful bishop. One was aimed for the arm which held his staff and the other his stupid head. 